Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, our guest is sismologist Brian Tucker, class of 67, the founder of Geohazards International. Welcome, Brian. It's good to have you with us here in cyberspace. I'm happy to have the company and have a, a talk with you and think about Pomona again. So how are yeah, so how are you adapting to these very strange times? In a very strange way. My uh, <laughs> I retired and from Geohazards International at the beginning of this year. I was so fortunate to find a wonderful person to uh, take over uh, as president of Geohazards International. And so my wife and I both retired at that time. And um, around February of this year, we decided that what we would like to do is rather than take up knitting or gardening or something like that, um, we thought what we'll do is rent our house for a year and travel around the uh, country and world. My wife is French um, and visit. So is mine, friends. by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, visit friends and family that we have long been neglecting. So we um, advertised our house at the end of February and it was uh, quickly rented. And we were informed that we had to be out of our house and all of our stuff. Um, by March 21 at 6 p.m. Oh. And, and this is this is all of our stuff. I mean, we have two kids and they all of their stuff. And they, they're now long gone. But their stuff isn't long gone. So, <laughs> so we um, had three weeks to oh. pack everything up and make it very clean. And... Of course, make uh, reserva- airline reservations and hotel reservations and in, uh, appointments to birthdays and weddings and I'm graduations. stressing for you, and this already happened. <laughs> so we made it in, in five minutes to spare, stepped out onto the sidewalk with a couple of suitcases mm-hmm. and um, realized that the world had changed in, in those three weeks. And so anyway, we then shortly, we recovered, stayed with some friends for a while and then got in our car and headed east and visited our children. And now I'm, we're in a wonderful, beautiful little village on Cape Cod and I'm rereading some classics and uh, rowing. Uh, on a beautiful pond here, and uh, that so that's what I'm doing. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's weird. We go it month by month. Maybe yeah. we're thinking maybe we'll move down to Florida just before the election to see if we can be of some use there. I, sounds good to me. <laughs> but it, it would, looks likely. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so tell us, uh, Brian, tell us about your early years. Uh, what were you like as a child? And uh, were you already interested in science? 
Um, my father was an engineer and he encouraged me to go into law for some mm. reason. But when I went to Pomona, which was so lucky for me because I went to high school uh, back east in, and uh, I didn't, I didn't know Pomona. I'd never been to Pomona. And those were the, not the day, those were before if parents take their kids around to visit all the campuses and everything. Um, but this man named Mr. Wheaton, I think he was called Dean Wheaton, was the admissions. And he came to our school and convinced and talked about how good Pomona was. And my parents who had grown up in California said how good it was. So I, I went there and uh, sight unseen. And uh, of course they didn't have engineering, but they had something much better, which was physics. And um, just a, a fantastic uh, faculty uh, where I remember up until that time I had studied hard because that's what you're supposed to do as a high school student and all. But it, it was at um, in Pomona in the physics department that I first was introduced to the real beauty of science. Um, it wasn't just a, a course to uh, try to get a good grade in, but they uh, the faculty then taught me something about, introduced me something to the beauty of science. And I started then um, spending my summers um, trying to learn more about science. And I was so lucky to be able to get a uh, summer internship at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in down in La Jolla. And there I not only saw the beauty of science, but uh, I was introduced to this international uh, world of scientists. So science was no, not just um, the, a, a wonderful faculty, but it was grad students and postdocs and fellows and um, from all over the world came to scripts and talked about um, applying science to um, the real world. And I, uh, that was just so fascinating to me. I, um, that momentum carried me on and I applied to grad school to get a PhD at Scripps. And uh, initially my, my major was in uh, fluid mechanics and um, but it, in, after doing that for a couple of years, I met um, someone who would eventually become my prof, who was um, a seismologist. And he um, said, if I wasn't doing anything on the coming weekend, he said, why don't we go out to Anza Borrego, uh, which is in the Imperial Valley, um, and record some earthquakes. And I had never done that. I didn't know how to do that or anything. But um, he took me out there and we got out there at uh, probably 10 or 11 at night. Everything's pitch black except all the stars above us. And we laid out on the, on the sand of, in the desert there, this seismogram, seismogram 
which uh, which was just drawing a, a straight white line on the drum that was rotating under it. And uh, I said, um, it, you know, it looks like it's broken. There's nothing recording. And he said, no, no, just look. And he just tapped his finger on the ground, just like what you would play a piano. And we were probably uh, 20 meters from the uh, seismometer. And the, the needle just went back and forth, rattled back and forth. I was so impressed that we, this was so sensitive. And he said, just be quiet <laughs> and, uh, and just wait and watch. And so we were just quiet. And then all of a sudden there would be this little rattle. And he said, okay, that looks like it's about eight kilometers below us um, on the Imperial San Jacinto Fault. And I was hooked after that, because how, <laughs> how could you um, penetrate and look, as it were, into the earth um, from these instruments, which in themselves were fascinating to me, how uh, the seismometer worked and how it was recorded. And um, so that just took me out of the uh, oceanography and into trying to apply seismology to making people's lives better. And this resonated with me because my I had heard from grandparents about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and I heard from my parents um, about the 1933 Long Beach earthquake, which collapsed schools throughout uh, L.A. And... Um, so it really seemed practical to me that this here was I could study the beauty of science, but I could apply it to make people make people's lives better. Um, so that was what got me. <laughs> that's quite a yeah. That's quite a uh, a trek from physics to oceanography to um, right to seismology. Um, Okay, from there, I know you spent a few years in Tajikistan, is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. Doing seismic my, research. Can you tell us about those years and, and how did they shape you? Oh my gosh, that, that was a radical change in my life. So I was graduating from grad school around 1975. The Vietnam War was just ending. Of course, that dominated the life of for sure, all males my age going through college and grad school. And, um, of course, at the end of the Vietnam War, we were all uh, distressed by what, that, how that all turned out. And it seemed like a lot of what we had been told by our government about what was happening in the world wasn't exactly as it was. And in particular, the Soviet Union was the dominant force in the world that uh, was affecting uh, us all. And just at this time, Nixon signed a environmental protection agreement with Kosygin that actually signed in 72. And one of the programs was envir environmental protection. 
I mean, was was earthquake prediction. It was environmental protection. It had 12 uh, programs in it. But um, one of the programs was earthquake prediction, which was a hot topic then because the Chinese claimed to have successfully predicted an earthquake in 1974. And so U USSR and, and America and Japan were all anxious to uh, try to predict earthquakes themselves. So um, in this USSR-US exchange program on environmental protection, um, I just signed up immediately because the, the, that meant that U.S. scientists would, would go to the Soviet Union and Soviet scientists would come to the U.S. and collaborate on earthquake prediction. And that um, took me to the mountains of Tajikistan. Uh, that's one of the primary places where there are earthquakes in the Soviet Union. And um, they, they had a big uh, base there uh, that was started in 1949 because of a big earthquake. So I, I just jumped at the chance. Um, and it, it, it wasn't, it didn't appear at all like a, a wise move for my career because I, I would live there for six months at a time and th there was no email. I, we could hardly get radio there. There was no phone in the mountains of Tajikistan at that time. So I was really cut off. And whereas my cohort that was graduating, had graduated with me were assistant profs and writing <laughs> papers and, um, and doing all the right things you should do to advance your career. Whereas I was, trying to learn Russian and setting up instruments in the mountains and studying quite esoteric uh, things. But what I, it, it just absolutely consumed me because on the side, I was learning something about the Soviet Union and about, of course, about Central Asia. And every time I would go back and forth from Tajikistan to I was then a, a, a officially based at MIT in Boston. I would take some other route. So I would go through India or Iran or Turkey or Greece. Um, and of course, all throughout the Soviet Union was, was on the route back to Boston. And I just exploded, expanded my view of um, the world and the politics and the science. And of course, I, I saw then that the people who are killed by earthquakes in the world don't live in single-story wood frame homes in Southern California. They live in either single-story mud adobe homes with thick walls and thick roofs made out of uh, mud which in an earthquake collapse and smother and crush people, or they are in um, five-story unreinforced masonry buildings, which are, uh, have, don't have any steel in them, and they collapse and kill. So I, I realized that um, um, 
what I had been studying was not going to affect most people in the world. And I, I, it, this really convinced me to try to uh, apply, go into applied science rather than academic research. And so, but it, it affected me. So that was a radical change. And I, I wanted to do something that would affect people more than writing good scientific journal papers. But it also gave me a, a, a perspective about what the world was like. And, and of, of course, I found that the Soviet people in the Soviet Union were not the... Um, were just like us, and uh, of course the, the government was terrible. And but but the people that I met were remain to to this day uh, wonderful close friends. Brian, you started talking about the impact of an earthquake and how much it depends on on the local conditions that, that yeah. you saw and in your in your travels. Um, how do you deal with those differences? For example, if you're a builder. Um, do you need different sets of standards? How, how does every location go about that? Right. It's a question of um, what are the local what local material is available. There's no point in suggesting to people in the mountains of Tajikistan that they need steel reinforced um, frames. And it also it, it depends on the economy. Um, and the other uh, vicissitudes of their life, if they are struggling just to feed their family and they're facing um, starvation um, year to year, um, telling them that an earthquake is likely to occur in the next hundred years doesn't get much traction so it it it's a it becomes which took me years and years and years to learn not a technological or scientific uh problem it, it's actually very easy to design an earthquake resistant building it's a little bit more difficult to design an earthquake resistant uh, to have an earthquake-resistant design that is affordable to the local conditions and, and has uses local material. But that's relatively easy compared to the psychological and sociological um, problem of having people um, comprehend a, quote, remote threat, remote in time, in this case, and um, that, but I felt that because I had these special seismologist glasses on, when I would travel around Iran and India and Pakistan and um, Turkey, I would look at buildings, and I knew for sure that those would collapse in an earthquake that I, I knew from seismological history was going to occur. And it, you, you felt compelled to warn them. So I, this is 
a long, not very direct answer, but eventually what we, when I uh, created and some friends of mine helped me in a great way, create a um, Geohazards International for the, with the mission of exporting science and technology and public policy from the U.S. and Japan to uh, poor countries. Um, what we found was most necessary was trying to um, convince people that they had a threat and that they could do something about it in an affordable manner. And it, everything is customized. Um, you, you can't, there's no point in designing something sitting in California. You, and also you, I, I, we found, I'm kind of jumping ahead on the story, but we, we found that what we, the key thing was to find somebody in the local community that was passionate about this and wanted to make his or her community safer. And it could be that this person would be the mayor. It could be the person, and I met the king of Nepal, and he wanted to help, the, to us, help us build safer schools in Nepal. But it could also be a, just a uh, hospital administrator of a single hospital. Or it could be a... Um, a, a teacher in an engineering school who didn't have a um, up-to-date curriculum. And so what we would found what we had to do initially was to go into a community that we knew was threatened and then just listen to all the people who might be interested in this and might be capable uh, and uh, uh, have the authority to make an improvement. And we would, we had various schemes to um, have these people come forward and for us to understand who was really passionate and passionate enough to carry on the work after we left. And so we would then, once we understood who was this uh, spark plug, uh, we would adapt a program from what we knew was working in California and adapt it and help that person start a new, have a new college curriculum or have a new program on how to retrofit schools or have a, a program that would make hospitals able to function after a large earthquake. So this was one of the joys of the work, that it was never dull and never routine, but it was the Achilles heel in a sense too, because there was no way to mass produce. There was no way to um, just translate uh, a document um, into a different language because it, it had to be customized to what the local people wanted. So, so, yeah, you've given us a, a sense of, of sort of the first steps of how geohazards worked, all the, the work you had to do with the community. But, but then there was also the engineering and sort of uh, building and all that. How did, 
I mean, and, and none of that, as you were saying, none of that could be cookie cutter. It, it, it had to be sort of reinvented every time. How do you go about something like that? Well, um, the most successful experience we had was in Kathmandu. And there we, um, I was so fortunate to meet a man um, a few years before we went to Kathmandu, a Nepalese guy at a conference in Bangkok. And I explained in that little conference what we had been doing in Ecuador, in Quito. And that, that man came up to me and said, listen, we need to do something like that in Nepal. And um, I worked for the Nepalese Geological Survey, but I, some friends of mine and I have created on paper, we have uh, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving safety, but we exist only on paper. We have a charter and we meet in somebody's living room every once in a while. But so can you come to Nepal and help us get started? And it took about three years of my going there and learning more about the person and the, the, who are the powerful people in the community. And we then um, got a Indian, um, a famous Indian and respected Indian structural engineer to come up to Kathmandu. And the key thing there was that, uh, frankly, I could get a more world-renowned structural engineer in San Francisco, but that guy might as well be a Martian for the, as far as the Kathmandu people, Nepalese are concerned, but India is the, you know, the huge big brother there. So if we could have the Indian structural engineer come up, and speak, by the way, in Hindi, um, which all uh, Nepalese understand, and explain how to build adobe homes stronger or to retrofit adobe schools using material and using a, a, a language that they all understood, then that was the key. Um, so we what we did was we found a, uh, a vulnerable school that we knew would collapse in the next big earthquake. And we, the cheapest thing would have been we hire a bulldozer and just push it over the, over the hill and replace it with a um, uh, plywood, a, a building made out of plywood. That would have given the safe structure and um, would have been so cheap, and we could have done that, paid for that ourselves. But instead, we got the Indian structural engineer and some Nepalese engineers who were taught by him to teach the masons of the village how to build uh, better structures. So we. And we did it in the school was located on the village square. So that strengthening the school took about six months. 
And so for six months, the whole village would walk by our project and they would ask, what are you doing? And they would say, well, there are earthquakes and then they will knock this down. And we're gonna, we're making, of course, I wasn't speaking in English. The, the Nepalese masons would say, we're making this stronger so it will stand up. And it was a, a basically a, a seminar for six months of the whole village. And when we were done, it, it, it's trivial that we had a stronger school. The thing is, the whole village all of a sudden could understand a long-term threat, a remote threat. Furthermore, they could understand that their friend, the Mason, could protect them from that. So when we left, they would come to the Mason and say, say, would you do that same thing to our home? Or people from neighboring villages would come and say, would you do that to our school? And it was just a snowball. And so we could leave and um, the, the thing took off on its own. So that, for example, when in 2015, which was 20 years later, a big earthquake occurred in Nepal, uh, all of the schools that were retrofit through this little pebble that we dropped in the uh, pond that spread, um, none were collapsed. And there were sometimes they, they were located next to schools that had not been retrofitted and which and those uh, collapsed. So it was a visible uh, advertisement, which, you know, further in, encouraged them to uh, now rebuild correctly. So it, it anyway. sounds like, I mean, you're a seismologist, but it sounds like you ended up having to become a sociologist. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what um, I learned, that we, um, how we perceive threats and um, manage remote threats um, is a first step. And it's not sufficient to know that an earthquake is going to come or that or how to build a better building. Yeah. It was, of course, I had no idea what I was getting in for when I started this. And as is, is often said, had I known all of the difficulties and how hard it was or how ill-equipped I was in starting. But the, um, the joy of it was learning about all these different cultures and societies um, and trying to figure out what they wanted. Like, just, uh, I won't take as much time, but uh, it's, it's very interesting to, it was very interesting to work in Pakistan, in northern Pakistan, because there the schools are controlled by uh, the uh, uh, mullahs, and you have to, it, it's something to try to get the religious leaders in northern Pakistan. I'm not talking Karachi or Islamabad. I'm talking about villages in Pakistan and convince them 
that God does not cause earthquakes and it's not fate and that you have you have the power to to do something about it and whereas in the is in the Quran they initially would tell me that God created earthquakes to punish sinners and that was a fun a little experiment uh, <laughs> which yeah that belief still exists <laughs> that, that belief, absolutely yeah. yeah Jerry Falwell I believe said that about the Haitian earthquake they, <laughs> they was a, it was retribution for uh, who knows what some nasty behavior of Haitians yeah, every disaster in the world has been blamed on, you know, on God. sin by someone. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I was just curious, you mentioned Ecuador, that you had done a project in Quito. Was it related to schools as well? Um, that's where I grew up, so that's, oh, that's really? what I'm asking. Uh -huh. No kidding. In, in I, Quito? I, grew up, I grew up in Guayaquil, so, but, so oh, in, in, I grew okay. up in Guayaquil. Yeah. Maybe you were in one of his schools. <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the, actually, Quito was our very first project, and um, there it was a wonderful, fun thing, too. I, all so um, happenstance. Um, I knew I needed to get the support of the mayor, and I learned something about him, and it turned out he went to the Kennedy School at Harvard, where mm. I had gone. And so I met him, was that yeah, me? I, my what? No. Yes, exactly. Okay. I remember yeah. my, my civics a little bit. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so I went to him and said, look, we want to do a, an ex, uh, a project here where we're going to document how vulnerable is your city. And we're going to project how many people will die, how many people will be injured, how many days you will be without water or power. Um, but we are also going to say the things that can be done about it. But I want to guarantee you that we won't make this, we have a press conference to say this and embarrass you. In fact, my plan is that we will have a press conference and you will say that you authorized us to do this study and you are announcing what it is as a first step you are going to do about it. And be, just because we happened to go to the same school and could name professors that we liked and everything, he trusted me. And, uh, and that is what we did. And um, uh, it, it was a wonderful initial uh, step, which... Uh, yeah, and he, he turned out to be a wonderful person. As you know, he ran into political problems, in my opinion, due to his wisdom and bravery, but it, it was not well accepted by the uh, people, by some of the people. Yeah. I last met him in Cambridge, uh, okay. here in Boston, yeah. Huh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Brian, you once said that a child in Kathmandu was 400 times more likely to die in an earthquake than a child in Japan. Is right. that still true? And, and why yes. is it that there's such a differential? I mean, is it just poverty? 
No, well, no. It, I mean, poverty is such a big umbrella. It's mm-hmm. a poverty of, of knowledge that allows poor schools to be built. It's a poverty of knowledge, thinking that there's nothing to do about the earthquakes if you know about them. And on the other side, it is a, it is the, uh, to the credit of the Japanese people and country to be aware of their, these problems to, and to have the technology and resources to build powerful schools. We wrote a paper where we ranked the likelihood of a child to die in some 25 countries, cities. And our thought was, getting back to sociology or psychology, that this would motivate the community. And um, we thought that if we, for example, compared the likelihood of a child dying in Lima, Peru, compared to the child dying in Santiago, Chile, which are neighbors, and in Santiago, Chile, they are much better prepared and and aware that this would be an embarrassment to the uh, government of Lima, and they would this would provide some political force for them to uh, improve the situation. It it wasn't. I thought it was. It's a neat idea, but it's. It's not so simple. But, but, <laughs> welcome yeah, to Latin anyway. America. <laughs> and, and welcome to politics. It's, right. It's not necessarily, um, the, the obvious advantages aren't necessarily what carry the day. No. But there can be times, and I think Jamil Mawad was a, a case of an enlightened leader. And the king of Nepal was... Uh, Fantastic. We didn't solicit him. He heard about what our work and he called us into his study and told us he would help us if, if in any way we could, um, we wanted. So. Brian, we'll be talking about earthquake preparedness and the impacts that earthquakes can have on different parts of the world. And But as we live in a, or we're living in a pandemic, what has the COVID-19 pandemic, what's the impact of the pandemic on earthquake preparedness? How, how has it affected it? Um, well, I'm very happy and proud, I guess, to say that um, my organization, former organization, Geohazards International, is functioning very well uh, despite COVID-19. And one of the reasons is that um, over those 25 years that I was was there, we gradually, the people we were hiring were people in remote countries in the communities where we had worked. So we have a team in Nepal, in Nepal and in India and in Bhutan and in uh, Santo Domingo and in Haiti. And those people are all, those teams are, we are Zooming and uh, talking with them regularly, but they are all sort of um, able to function on their own. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't require, as it did when I was starting, 
we in the California office to travel around the world to try to make things happen. So, uh, of course, COVID-19 has been a um, stress financially and uh, on the organization. People tend to donate less, and it's harder for us to meet the demands of the contracts that we had signed up prior to COVID-19. But I'm, it's, I'm just so proud of what my successor and uh, team is doing, and they're functioning uh, very well. To me, the, uh, I'll confess the uh, biggest uh, slowly evolving change that I see since I started Geohazards International is the increasing awareness of the threat of climate change. And um, that too is a remote, though it's in, unfortunately becoming less and less, it's becoming more and more obvious and less and less remote. Um, but I feel that given the urgency to address that natural hazard, or actually it's a human hazard because we're creating it, um, that de de deflects and, and distracts work on hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes. And as it should, I, I think that is the compelling problem facing uh, the world once we get over COVID and uh, all resources and attentions and should be addressed to trying to manage that. So. Brian, I, you know, you, uh, one of MacArthur Fellowship along the way, uh, popularly, you know, popularly known as a genius grant. I, I don't mean to embarrass you by bringing that up. I, I just, um, but I've read a description from you about how that happened. And I think it would be of interest to young people who also want to do something in the world, because I, I, I know you said you went in thinking this is what I want to do isn't solving some huge problem in the world. And that turned out to be an advantage. Well, um, first of all, it, it's, it's not embarrassing to me because everybody who knows me just bursts out laughing when they <laughs> say that I, that using genius and my name in the same sentence, um, especially my wife, by the way, <laughs> but, um, so, but uh, when you say, how did it come about? Um, what do you mean by that? Well, Mark? I remember what I read was something where you were explaining how you, um, you thought you were um, going in with this narrow problem you wanted to solve the uh, about uh, earthquakes in in um, in you know areas like Pakistan and Tajikistan things that weren't going to affect everybody but just just local populations in certain areas and. They said, well, we have lots of people who come in wanting to solve the huge problems. What we don't have are people who are coming in and trying to solve something so specific like this. And they liked it. I, that was what I remember. Is that wrong? 
Well, I don't, um, I, I, I actually, I confess I forget that actual conversation, but, um, the, the, the MacArthur, the way MacArthur fellows fellowships are, are awarded is very, uh, is secret and it's, it's very, um, hard to explain. And I, I think it's, again, very uh, happenstance. It's sort of somebody happens to know what uh, somebody is doing and they say to the, the MacArthur Foundation, please consider this person. And then they somehow do a vetting and somehow some committee decides what who they want to uh, uh, recognize and help along the way. I, I, so, and I've never asked, I've, 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 I've never asked the MacArthur people why they chose me. I also don't even know who to ask because it is all, um, be, is, it's a secret, uh, process and a very distributed one, but possibly they were motivated by uh, <laughs> the naivety that I had to um, take on a, 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 a complicated problem and stick with it and, um, and try lots of different things, different approaches and uh, failing lots and lots of times and trying something else and than having some measure of success on some of them. So possibly they wanted to encourage other people to try similar outrageous uh, quests. So on that note, we're, we're going to have to wrap this up. We're, we've been talking with seismologist Brian Tucker, class of 1967. Thanks, Brian. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. And to all of who stuck with us this far. Thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time. So that and wasn't so bad. So bad. <laughs>